Ooh, joy. That should strike joy in your heart this morning because it's fully biblical. It's fully scriptural. It carries the full weight of God with it. Christ stood in the place of sinners. That's not even in my notes. So I'm going to get back on track. We're in uh, Philippians chapter 1. I'm sorry, I do believe we have children's church for those who would like from little on all the way to fifth grade. So if you'd like, you can be dismissed out this way. But we also encourage if you would like to stay, sit with mom and dad, hear the words, dads, moms, teach your children the word of God. And we totally welcome any and all disturbances as far as babies crying. It's like music to my ears. Um, so we welcome that and we will bear with that. And that's wonderful. So we've been in Philippians. Last week was the book introduction. We saw that it's going to be one of the most joy-filled, Christ-centered letters of the New Testament. If you missed last week, I encourage you to go to our website, kahaluibaptist.org. Our sermons are posted on there. And what a message of joy to start out with striking than he took my sins and my sorrows. That alone should catapult us to live lives that are joyfully victorious. And I hope the Lord reinforces that with his word. A few things before we start. Next week is the Lord's Supper. We're going to be celebrating and remembering Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And we're going to do it through visible means as we partake of a little cracker and a drink. And we're going to exercise a very real spiritual reality of our communion with Jesus, our fellowship with Jesus, and our fellowship with one another. So I just want to preemptively encourage you all, if you have any unresolved conflict, any unresolved bitterness in your heart from the commandments of Scripture, go to your brother and be reconciled. And then come and partake and rejoice that Jesus took our sin of bitterness, took our sin of anger, took our sin of lack of compassion and judgment. And we'll rejoice and partake together. So you guys have a week. If you miss this week, then you got a mo another month and a half or two months before the next one. Also on the back on the cork board over there by the bathrooms is a preaching schedule. It's a preaching schedule. That's the schedule that I will be going through Sunday morning and all throughout. I got us planned out to July, but that'll show you out through March. So that way you can look, okay, what's, what's next week? And read the passage, study it, learn it, and you'll find that when you come and sit and listen, it's actually you're far more engaged and the Spirit is ministering to His Word because it's already on your heart and your mind. So that's back there. It is subject to change, always, right? The Spirit could lead and, and I might just do something totally different. So subject to change, but it's back there. I encourage you to check it out, take a picture of it with your iPhone, do whatever you got to do. And then we'll jump into Philippians. Like I already mentioned, it's one of the most joy-filled passages in the New Testament, I'm told that the, the tone of my sermon ought to match the tone of the text. 
So, for example, on Good Friday, when we think about the death and crucifixion of Jesus, I likely won't be cracking any jokes. It'll be heavy because it's a heavy sermon. It's a heavy passage. But here we find a very different situation, much joy and rejoicing and remembering and delight and affection and on and on. Very joy-filled passage. Before I jump full on into it, I want to address some of you in here, probably many of you in here. For those of us who are hurting or grieving, maybe the loss of a loved one, maybe some conflict in your relationship, maybe you're grieving the loss of a child or a family member or friend who's just committed suicide, or you're just grieving pain in your body, or maybe you're walking through a season of depression that doesn't seem like it will ever, ever end. To have a joy-filled sermon come to you that's all, yes, rejoice in Christ, and, and you're in the middle of sorrow and suffering can feel like rubbing salt in a wound. I want you to know I've thought about you and I've prayed for you. I want you to know it's okay to grieve and weep over the effects of living in a fallen world. It's okay. I'm not going to tell you, you know what, just be happy. Just be happy already. Don't you know what Jesus did? Just be happy. Why are you sad? No, the the slogan you can hang over the Christian life is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So I want to encourage you. I'm not going to come alongside you and say, brother, sister, just be happy. I'm going to walk with you through this trial, and I'm going to point you to Jesus and the promises of Jesus and what grace Jesus is going to give you. And I'm going to remind you what he said to the disciples lovingly. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Rest on that promise. I'm getting ahead of myself. Rest on that promise if that is you this morning. For my visitor who maybe is not a Christian, maybe you're here and, and you're just checking out church, I want to know that you've been thought of too. You've been thought of also. I want to address an idea that you may have that I hear often from my non-Christian friends. Basically, Christianity boils down to being nice to people, helping people, being a good person. And as I do all these things, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't killed or, or punched or assaulted or stolen from anybody. In the end, just like every other religion, it'll boil down to the same thing, love others and be nice to people. I hope to show you this morning that scripture, the Bible, Christianity is not primarily or even remotely about, is not primarily about good morals, but it's about an intimate, joyful relationship with Jesus Christ. 
who took your sin and sorrow and made it his very own. So I hope you'll see that this morning as we walk through and see what it is about this Jesus that gives us confidence and joy and love. I'll remind you, Paul's on death row. If you guys remember, Paul is on death row. He's on trial. He wrote this letter. He's not in a very nice prison. We went over that last week. If he wins, he gets to go on and preach the gospel. Joy. If he dies... He loses his head, but he gains everything. And so he writes this letter to the Philippians. He, he's wanting to encourage them. He's wanting to come alongside them because we have evidence that 2 Corinthians 8 says they just suffered a severe test of affliction and were extremely poverty-stricken. We don't know much more about that, but we know that this church was struggling with the weight of discouragement that comes from being persecuted. And Paul is writing to them, and he's reminding them of some great truths. So we're going to dissect this passage 3 through 11. We're going to look at it like this. We're going to see Paul's always mindful. He's always mindful. He's always confident. And he's always praying. Always mindful, always confident, and he's always praying. I give that to you for little hooks for your mind to hold on to and help track us through. Let's get rolling. Philippians 1, 3 through 11. And I will press my buttons to get there with you. And we'll get rolling. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is always mindful. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why, Paul? Why? Why do you remember, Paul? What is it that fills you with joy when you think about this particular church? Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel. Because of your partnership 
in the gospel. We've got evidence that we'll see later from this letter and others that the, this church, this particular church, gave like none other. They gave out of the 2 Corinthians 8 says, in a severe test of affliction, out of the abundance of their joy, and it overflowed in a wealth of generosity. And they were poor. We talked about that this morning in the Gospel Project. But because of their joy in Christ, they were partners, and they sent Paul gifts while he was in prison. Don't raise your hand, but who here has ever been in prison or arrested? It's a lonely place to be. You feel abandoned. There's a stigma that follows you around, and anybody that associates with you almost bears that stigma with you. It was the same in Paul's day. But this church did not abandon Paul as some others had. They, part, they were partners in the gospel with him. They supported him. They even sent people from, his, from their own church to his. We have a prison ministry in here. Great ministry. Uncle Bill leads that up faithfully. And we think, oh, man, I got to, maybe I'll think this because I'm probably not as servant-hearted as Bill is. Man, I got to go all the way from Kahului across the highway to go up to the prison on a Sunday and be with these guys. But yet this church sent one of their own 800 miles to be with Paul in prison. And he says, I rejoice at your partnership in the gospel. I rejoice at your partnership in the gospel. They're partners. That word there is the same word we get our word communion from, or fellowship. They were, if you will, fellowshipping in the gospel. They were communing in the gospel as they bore Paul's burden as he was in prison. And he says that was all of them were partners in the gospel. See, this idea that we have in church today, that you can be a Christian, but I can do my own worship at home. I don't need to go to church to do this. I can, God is everywhere. So I can be at the beach, or I can be at my home, or I can be at work, wherever I'm at. I can have my own little relationship with God, and I don't need the church That's foreign to Paul. Because for Paul, when you're in Christ, you are in partnership with other believers. The one will not exist the other. This one guy said, to say I'm a member of the church without belonging to a church is like saying I'm married without a wife. Brothers, you cannot love Jesus and ignore his bride. You cannot come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'll take you, but I won't take your bride. They're together, and in Christ, we are joyful partners. Joyful partners because we have all partook of the same body, of the same grace. And so when I think and when I talk and when I preach about membership in a local church, 
I am meaning that we will join together hand in hand and walk alongside one another so that when Jesus comes back, we will be found with our hands to the plow. We will be found on task proclaiming the gospel, seeing that the nations know the gospel, not like a country club. That we would be partners in the gospel. I want to make note of that. We're partners, but it's in the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus stood in the place of sinners, that he died unjustly, that he resurrected on the third day, Easter's coming. And that he has ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand and rules over all things for his church. That gospel is what partners us together and that he is coming again. That is what partners us together. So my friends who are from Seattle and Wisconsin and all over, you can come and worship with us. Because we are partners together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you are family when you come here. Because we are in Christ Jesus. Nothing else will bind us and hold us together like Christ should. We commune around all sorts of things. One of the first things I'm always asked is, where did you go to high school? Where did you go to high school? So, they expect Baldwin High School, Maui High School, Prison View Estates up there and uh, up country. No, Kinke Kalike High School. We commune around this, and then, oh, when did you graduate? What year? And we start to we start to form connections and make make a community, try and find common ground with these people around our school, or maybe it'll be around a sports team. And so while you might be allies during the season, during the Super Bowl, you're enemies. Maybe around sports or hobbies or children or stages of life. Well, I'm young and single, so I need other young and singles. And we'll commune around our young and youthful singleness. Or, or I'm middle-aged with, with children, and I need other parents and children to kind of hold me together. Or I'm a senior, so I'm going to stick with all the seniors. Brothers and sisters, that is not the picture of the New Testament church. The New Testament church is blasting across all other divisions of society and is united in Jesus Christ. It brings people together who would otherwise have no reason to be together. No reason culturally. No reason any other way other than your union with Jesus. That's our partnership in the gospel. So I ask you, brother and sister, as a believer in Christ, how are you exercising your partnership in the gospel? I could give numerous ways. Let me give you at least two. One you guys have an excellent opportunity to help be a partner in the gospel as we try and preach it and see others come to know Jesus and get the joy that's only found in Jesus. Preschool Sunday. Preschool Sunday's coming up in two weeks. Lord's Supper, Preschool Sunday. Sometimes we're tempted not to come 
to preschool Sunday because we're like, oh, it's kids. It's not for us, and, and maybe I'll sit out, or there's not a lot of room, so I don't want to crowd it, so I'm just not going to come that Sunday. Brothers and sisters, as partners in the gospel, the preschool is a ministry of Kahului Baptist Church. We give so that they might come to know Christ, and I encourage you, come. Come on preschool Sunday. Come minister to the families. It is getting more and more difficult for us to go out and not get kicked out wherever we are, whether it be the mall or anywhere else. It's getting more difficult. But when the nations, when the people, when the community comes here, Brothers and sisters, be here and stand together for the sake of the gospel. And if there's no room, if there's no room in here because there's just an overflow of people first, praise God. Second, go into another room and pray for me. Pray for me that I would have joyful words that are Christ-centered and truth-filled and that the gospel would pierce hearts and spend the whole sermon, if you have to, in prayer. And then fellowship with the families afterwards and pray that God reaps a harvest. Partner with me in the gospel to the preschool. The other thing, number two, second thing you could do, you guys are going to hear about this coming up. I'm going to give a preemptive hit. The Annie Armstrong Easter offering. The Annie Armstrong Easter offering. So if you guys aren't familiar with Southern Baptists, we have two correct me if I'm wrong later, we have two primary offerings for missions. We give a percentage all throughout the year of what, what you give. So you give today at the end, a percentage of that will go to the Southern Baptist Convention for the sake of missions. But we have two primary fundraisers for the sake of missions the Southern Baptist does. The first one, Lottie Moon Christmas offering. You guys gave, you gave sacrificially, and I, man, thank you all. Praise God, 100% of that will go to declaring the gospel to the nations. And then 100% of the Annie Armstrong Easter offering will go to declaring the gospel to North America. To North America, the North American Mission Board. So I'm going to encourage you to give. Our church goal is $1,500. $1,500. That's our church goal. You say, oh, here we go. Pastors, Christians always talking about money. I knew it was going to come. They just want me here for my money. You're right. No. You guys weren't expecting that one, were you? No. That's not what we want. If that's the way your heart is at this moment, if that's a struggle that you're having, that you're thinking about that, then no brother or sister or friend or visitor, keep your money. Keep it. It's all good. I don't want that. I'm talking to members here, not even to visitors. Members, brothers and sisters, partner in this task. $1,500. Not a penny of it will go to me. 1500 for the sake of the gospel in North America. If 30 people, 30 people, that's it, 30, give $50 each, we will easily reach that goal. Easily reach that goal. 
30 people giving $50 or 50 people giving $30 or one person giving $1,500, we will easily reach that goal. And that would be awesome. So that's another way in which you can partner in the gospel. And that's exactly the type of partnership Paul has in mind. We know this because he's writing this letter to thank the church for their gifts, some of which were financial. The gospel hits us where our heart is. Often here, my heart is in money, and so I want to hold on to it. Always confident. Always confident. I'm going to pick up the pace. Always confident. We see that in verse 6, one of the most prized and treasured verses in all of Scripture as we think about the security of our salvation. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Oh my goodness, what a wonderful confidence Paul has. He has just commended them for their partnership in the gospel. He thanked God for that, and then he shifts focus, sort of, and I am sure that God is going to complete that work. See, their partnership, their giving out of their poverty, and he says from the first day until now, so their perseverance in that partnership was signs of God's work that he began in them. It was an evidence. It was an overflow, if you will. And Paul says, that is a sign of God's work in you. And because God always finishes what he starts, he never leaves a task uncompleted, unlike me or you. God always finishes. Paul says, on that confidence... He is going to complete that work in you, brother or sister. God will save to the uttermost. And what joy fills our heart when we read passages like 1 Corinthians, that whole book where he scolds people for heinous sins, and he calls them saints. He calls them saints. And Paul's confidence, his unshakable confidence, is not, although he's looking at the work of that church, his confidence is not in the working of the people in that church. His confidence is in who? Christ, in the work God began. Because salvation is God's glory from start to finish, and he will not share that glory with anybody else. Nobody at the end of the day will be able to say, I got saved and you didn't because I made the right choice. I made the better choice. I made the more wise choice. We will look back and we will look and it will be a massive work of God's grace in our lives. He worked. We are dependent on him. And so our confidence in what some call the perseverance of the saints or eternal security or the preservation of the saints, whatever label you want to put on it, the truth that 
Believers, true believers, will not fall away, but will overcome to the end and be found waiting for Christ. That doctrine, whatever you call it, is not primarily in the work of the saints. Our confidence is in the work of God Almighty to complete what he began. And brothers and sisters, Paul gives this promise to sustain their faith in God. To sustain their faith in God. I mentioned some of you who were suffering this morning. Paul was also suffering under the weight of death. I mentioned you, and what's going to sustain you in your suffering is that there is an end. It will not always be this trial you are walking through right now. What will sustain you is faith in God that he will deliver, that he will complete, and that he will sustain you to the end. It's promises like this that will sustain you, will sustain your faith and your fight for the gospel. And I want you to see this confidence and joy that Paul has and their partnership in the gospel just fills him with love and affection. Listen to the terms. I remember you. I always remember you in all my remembrance of you. I pray for you with joy. Every prayer filled with joy. And he goes on to say, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. To feel what way? that God will finish the work he started. It's right for me to feel this way about you all. Why? Because I hold you in my heart. Because I hold you in my heart. And then he goes on to say, I yearn for you. God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that phrase, the affection of Christ Jesus. First take note, that's how Paul feels about the church. So I'm going to ask you, how do you feel about your brothers and sisters? This has struck me in my heart this week as I meditated on it and thought about it. Could I say that I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus? I have affection for you, for sure. I pray for you. I promise. But could I call God as my witness about my affection being for you the same as for Christ? So I want to encourage you, look around at each other. You see how this is all very connected to Lord's Supper. What is your affections for your brothers and sisters? Is it like that? But I don't want to just leave you there. Because yes, it is motivating to see people do great acts of kindness and say, hey, I want to be like that. Read an article in the newspaper. Somebody leaves a tip at a restaurant. $1,000, you're like, wow, that's awesome. I would like to do that. We are motivated by looking at others sometimes and saying, man, I would like to be like that. Some of us are motivated like that. That's not the primary way Paul is going to motivate us here. 
The primary way Paul is going to motivate us is not saying, look at me and how I love. He's going to say that phrase, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Christ yearns for you. So you're not looking at somebody else having not experienced it yourself. You have tasted the love of God. You have seen that he is good. You have experienced his loving hand. And Paul says, like that, like that love, like that undeserved favor, love one another. Let it overflow. And then that love that Paul has moves him to pray. It moves him to pray. We often talk about loving one another. I love you. I love you guys. I'll see you later. But how often does that love, even for your wife or your children, move you to pray? How often does that love move you to pray for them? And what do your prayers look like if you are moved to pray for them? Well, let's let Scripture help form our prayers and move us as we think and ponder the love of Christ. And he goes on to say, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. We'll see two ultimate purposes we won't get into. The immediate purpose, so that you may be able to choose what is valuable, what really matters. Or that says to approve what is excellent. The higher purpose than that, So you'll be found found pure and blameless. And then one more level above that, to the glory of God. That's our highest goal, God's glory in this prayer. And so Paul is almost in effect saying, there is more on the line than even your good things you do. It's the glory of God that is on the line. That's why we pray. And that's why we have confidence because God will sustain his glory, and it will be known. Paul's love is that, Paul's prayer is that their love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Why is that? Why not just say, let your love abound more and more? Why these constraints of with knowledge and all discernment? I would argue, too much of a good thing is a bad thing. For example, we all like water, or actually, I'm sorry, let me fix that. We all don't like water. Some of us like water, and I think they say you need about eight glasses a day or something like that, and you go to the bathroom about 20 times a day if you do that. Now, suppose I say, man, I just really want some water. Lord, please give me some water, and the Lord's like, tsunami. And all of a sudden, we got a tsunami comes, and hey, you got water. You got water, prayer answered. No. But then I say, Lord, I I would like some water, and Uncle Bill, and he's like, hey, I got some water. Too much of a good thing. Or love with knowledge. It's supposed to be anchored in the truths of Scripture, not led by emotions or whims. Sometimes teenagers are described like that, just kind of all over. I really need this, or I really love you. I know I've been with you for like a month, and, and I'm just, I'll never get over this. Sorry, guys, I had to. I had to. It's right there. We've all been there. We've all been there. 
It's anchored in the truths of scriptures, not led by emotions primarily or any other thought process, but guided by the word of God. And then with discernment. People who are loving and have knowledge but lack discernment, we tend to call them stalkers sometimes. Like, oh, I love her so much. I'm just, I just want to call her. I'm going to be there for her. I wanna... Some of you guys have an experience with people like these, like this. Sometimes we call them stalkers or they don't know how to control themselves. I'm just kidding. There's other ways that this can look and play. But it's the application of love and scriptures and knowledge to various situations throughout the day to do them in a way that honors Christ. To live in a way that honors Christ. It's the idea that we find in Hebrews 5, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The ability to distinguish is the mark of maturity in the life of the Christian. I have a son. I have a son, and my son is about 15 months old. His, one of his favorite words is Torah. Torah. If you hear him, Torah. That's the name of my dog. He'll say Torah. He'll walk around, Torah, Torah, Torah. Whenever we're out and about, he'll see a little dog, and he'll say Torah. Torah. He'll see a cat, Torah. In a book, he'll see like an elephant, and he'll be like, Torah. <laughs> I'm like, no, son, not Torah, not Torah. He lacks the ability to discern right now in his immaturity. And believers, we are like that too, sometimes in different areas. We lack discernment. We go calling everything good, good. Here's a good resource, good. Your best life now, good. And we don't even weigh these things on what the truths of Scripture actually say about the contents. So we need love with knowledge and discernment. So that we may be able to choose the things that are the most valuable. We may be able to choose the things that are the most valued, the, mo the most important, the most Christ-honoring things that'll make us, what, pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We need this because sometimes the choice isn't between bad and good, or sin and not sin. Sometimes the choice is better or best, good and greater. And so we need wisdom for these types of things. Yes, you are permitted, Romans 14, to do this, yes, there is no law against it, but what's the best? What's the most beneficial for your brothers and sisters and for the glory of Christ? So we need this. And ultimately, it's for the glory of God. So brother and sister, I'm going to ask you all, what is your affection? Where does your partnership lie? What brings you joy? And are you exercising this type of prayer on behalf of myself and each other to pray for abounding love, abounding discernment and knowledge for the ultimate goal of presenting one another pure and blameless? We're going to have a time of invitation. I'm just going to be over here to pray with you all. 
might be another brother and sister here, if you guys just flock in mass to pray with you all. If the Lord is weighing something heavy on your heart, we just want to pray with you and for you. And we'll be praying regardless. So come and pray with us and sing and worship to God. Let's pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is powerful. I thank you that our joy is not rooted in a hope that will fade away or pass. But may we see that Christ is our treasure, that Christ will sustain us to the end, and may we not put our hope in men, for men will fail us, or in money, because it will pass. But Lord, may we look to Jesus as the treasure of our souls. Feed your flock and build us up in Jesus' name. Amen.